Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your talking chairs of talking points, your disembodied genie heads of general interest trivia, your bowtie-clawed bastions of banality. My name is Jordan Runtog. You're... Porn theaters of petty talking points. <laughs> and I'm Alex Seigel. <laughs> Not even 90 seconds into this episode, we already got that in there. It's, the, it's the other shoe of a two-part <laughs> Pee Wee Herman series. <laughs> that is true. That is correct. We are back with part two of our deep dive into the lives and times. I guess it's only one life <laughs> and really one time of Pee Wee Herman. You, you, you take my meaning. That's right. It's Pee Wee 2, Pee Harder. <laughs> no. A good day to Pee Wee. Stop. Stop it. You don't like a good day to Pee Wee? They're all so bad. They're so, they're so bad. Last week, we discussed his rise via alternative comedy stage show and Tim Burton produced film. Today, we're going to explore the delightfully acidic Saturday morning kids show Pee Wee's Playhouse, his trip to tabloid infamy. And his return to regain his rightful place in the pop culture pantheon. And this is all in honor of his creator, the late great Paul Rubens, who died of cancer in July at the age of 70. Heigl, as we opened last week's episode, you spoke at length, and very eloquently, I might add, about how much the character of Pee Wee Herman unsettled you. Uh, I was wondering, after all we discussed for that episode, have your feelings on him changed at all? Now, now that you know more about him, is there less to fear? No, I still find it. I still find it. <laughs> weird and, and and kind of horrifying um but i'm happy other people don't you know it's weird because i always found him scary but i loved him anyway i don't know why i there's something it, it's like looking into the abyss yeah yeah i don't know there's just i don't really cotton on to like it's because you love the 50s man i just i don't really cotton that is on true. to that's true that that just the day glow for mica bake light 
pastel, you know, John Waters bowling shirt. How many other things can I cram in here to describe this vision? Plastic flamingo, Plas- which yes. are from my hometown yeah. in uh, Lemonster, Massachusetts. Yeah. That's where the plastic lawn flamingo was invented? Lemonster or Worcester? Somewhere near where I grew up. Huh. Lemonster made national news this week when there were historic floods. Yeah, it was on the uh, the Weather Channel's TikTok page and everything. I mean, it's either that or fentanyl, right? Yeah. That's a Springsteen song. Well, they shut down the pink flamingo place in <laughs> Worcester last night. The flamingo overdosed on fentanyl. I mean, as a kid, I used to find something very calming about all the 50s blandness. And now I really like it because I like the uncanny valleyness of it and the darkness of it. Oh, and yeah. The, just the, the creepiness of it. So that's, I, no, that's I mean, been my journey. I, 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 that's the part of it I love. It's like, like I was yeah. saying that, like Judy Garland Christmas special mm-hmm. aesthetic. But um, yeah, no, I don't know. I haven't, can't say I've really like, uh, I mean, I will get my favorite mean iTunes review. Uh, uh, only for Alex to lazily declare his ignorance of whatever topic they're, they're discussing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> we got a very nice review this week uh somebody said that we've been all they listened to all uh the last month which i think is very nice thank and you listeners. somebody somebody else has uh asked us to be their brothers which listeners dear listeners please accept us in your hearts as your brothers we are more than happy to be your audio brothers your audio brethren <laughs> uh do we get any more requests recently I need to check. I wrote a lot of them down. Well, I can reassure um, people that Big Trouble is happening. Not the 2000s movies. Big, the masterpiece, Big Trouble in Little China. Um, spoiler alert. We've got some good good ones coming up for Halloween. Yeah. Um, it's my time. Yes. <laughs> and I, I saw a... Um, I was lucky enough to attend a screening of Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads concert documentary last night. With uh, It was the one after Toronto. So it's the second time the... Uh, members of the Talking Heads have shared a stage since their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction 20 years ago, which was really cool. They had all Q&A afterwards. And I forgot what a great concert film that was. I Part of me really wants to do Stop Making Sense. So yeah, we should. If, if, if anyone agrees, please tweet at us because I'm, I'm worried that not enough people would care. But if you would like that, please let us know on Twitter. Anyway, before we dive into this, Heigl, I imagine you did not watch Pee-wee's Playhouse growing up. No, I again, it was just like something that my... I was more of a Saturday morning cartoon kid. Like I was, my big childhood Recess. memories. No, my big childhood memories are like Ninja Turtles, really, and and then like Spider Man and X Men. Something about this just escaped me at that point. I think also like if, if this is what is this late eighties, I probably would have been just doing like Land Before Time constantly. God, that movie is way more unsettling and upsetting than Pee Wee Herman. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I know. My does? parents, my parents, yeah, my parents told me it, it, it was like my favorite movie around this this time. It says a lot about me. Um, yeah, I don't know. This was just not on my radar. My parents had no, uh, none of my friends or peers. Like it was not like something that I was exposed to via osmosis. Just a real blind spot for me, which is part of why it's so fascinating to me. Well, it's not the last time we will use the word exposed in this episode. (laughs) Let's dive in. From the insane lengths that Paul Rubens went to preserve the illusion that Pee Wee was in fact a real person, to the insane lengths that he went to achieve his creative vision for the perfect Guji playhouse, to the insane lengths he went to create an all-natural cereal for kids that looked like dog food. To the insane length of his... Wait. Oh... 
I don't know if you can keep that. You know what? We'll end it there. <laughs> Here is the second installment of our two-part episode about Pee Wee Herman exploring everything you didn't know about Pee Wee's Playhouse. Even the name sounds obscene. <laughs> Something about Playhouse. Mm. Pee Wee and Playhouse. Clubhouse would have been better, maybe? Yeah. F- house. Mm. Hog house. Pee-wee's hog house. June, can we add a little ding sound every time Heigl says hog in this episode? <laughs> According to lore, the story of Pee-wee's Playhouse begins at the premiere of Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985, when the vice president of children's programming at CBS approached Paul Rubin's manager about potentially working on a show for them. In reality, I get the sense that this offer didn't materialize or at least solidify until after the financial success of the film. Because as we talked about in the last episode, everyone thought Pee-wee's Big Adventure was kind of weird and didn't really think it had much of a chance for mass appeal. They rolled it out slowly in theaters across the country. So, yeah, I can't imagine that a network TV executive would have watched that and said, we want that on our airwaves. So they probably waited until the dollars rolled in. But what is agreed upon is that when the CBS network did approach Paul Rubens, the original idea was for it to be an animated show. And this didn't really sit well with Paul. As he later told Rolling Stone, I'd had the stage show originally, so I was much more interested in doing something closer to that, something live action. So when they suggested doing a cartoon, I said, I'm not really interested in that. Let's do a real kid show. I was a big Howdy Doody freak going up. I was actually on one show when I was a kid in the audience and was much more interested in doing something like that. Howdy Doody, Captain Kangaroo, a lot of local kid shows that were on a long time ago, those were the influences. And in this era, this was sort of a radical departure from the Saturday morning TV lineup. Though live action kids programming was big in the 50s, like he just mentioned, by the 80s, it was pretty much unheard of. PBS had educational shows like Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street, but major networks were dominated by cartoons. In fact, by the time Pee-wee's Playhouse premiered in 1986, it was the only fully live-action kids show on the Big Three Saturday morning lineup. The debatable exceptions are reruns of KidVid on NBC, which is partially live-action but mostly animated, and ABC's weekend special anthology series, which occasionally included live-action specials. But Paul Rubens was passionate about live-action. He told the AV Club in 2006, I was thinking about how important all those kid shows were to me when I was a kid and how much I feel like they affected me. And that just seemed really exciting to me. I was really excited by the idea that doing a real kid show could potentially affect kids in an amazingly positive and great way. However, he did incorporate elements of animation into the program. One of the most popular of these segments followed the adventures of Penny, a young girl with, as you may have guessed, pennies for eyes. Horrifying. And the, Why yeah, did they yeah. do that? Are they not familiar with the concept of placing coins over dead people's eyes to pay the way for the ancient Greek ferryman, Charon? That's how far back that goes? Yeah. That seemed like some kind of like ring around the rosy, like plague era no, British thing. To pay the ferryman to get I, you across I the river that. Styx. Wow. Love sticks. <laughs> that's a Simpsons. Sticks, that's a Simpsons throwaway <laughs> joke. They do in one of the Halloween or uh, Treehouse of Horror episodes where they're like, they cross the river sticks and they they it's like a river in hell and it's a bunch of skeletons singing along to Lady of the Morning. She's my lady. 
Did they name themselves Sticks and then have Come Sail Away as like a River Sticks reference? Possibly. I don't know. Who gives a shit? I hate that band. Really? They're no Boston. I'll tell you that much. You only like Boston because you interviewed Tom Schultz. And- I like Boston because Boston was DIY as hell. Like, yeah, it was just him in his basement, Yeah, right? dude, that whips. That is legit DIY rock. It might be like pompous, and he might be like a total weirdo who hounded his bandmates to death, but... Uh, oh, Brad Delp was... The, and one the, of the drummers uh, died on like a rock cruise, right? Did he like fall overboard? I was working on a theory that Tom Scholz is killing the members of Boston who don't live up to his exacting specifications, but that's a legally actionable claim, so... <laughs> hey, Brad Delp, didn't he like... He hung himself. He, he, yeah. No, 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 no. It was, I, it, he, um, I think he suffocated himself with barbecue charcoal in his bedroom. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's a plot point of, uh, that Netflix show Beef with, uh, Stephen Young. Is Yun it really? Stephen Young. It sounds like a Final Destination thing. With Stephen Young and, uh, uh, um, uh, have you seen that show? I've heard it's really good. It is really, yeah, it's really good. Ali Wong and Steven Yun. Yeah, uh, it opens with him returning uh, barbecue grills to Home Depot. And the guy's like, you've bought and returned all these barbecue grills. And it's later revealed that he's putting them in his bedroom and uh, using them for a suicide attempt. <laughs> and then returning them when it fails. Two charcoal grills were found to have been placed in the bathtub and lit, causing the room to fill with smoke. I... It had to, somebody had to have read the lead singer from Boston's Wikipedia page when they were writing that script. I refuse to believe that two people came to that. God, this is dark. <laughs> it's Pee Wee's Playhouse. God damn it. <laughs> it's, it fits. Oh, where the hell were we? Oh, Penny. Penny. Yes. Yeah. The animated segment Penny on Pee Wee's Playhouse. This claymation segment, uh, which apparently originated from the network's request for more female characters in Pee-wee's Playhouse, was created by two men who would go on to become titans in animation, Nick Park and Craig Bartlett. Nick Park is best known to me as one of the creators of the British series Wallace and Gromit, alongside Peter Lord. And Craig Bartlett went on to create Hey Arnold for Nickelodeon. Hell yeah. In fact, the character of Arnold, you know, football head, uh, was created when Bartlett was testing claymation techniques for Penny. And speaking of Nickelodeon, one of the composers on Pee-wee's Playhouse was Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo, who would go on to do the music for Rugrats. According to him, the composition for Pee-wee's Playhouse was a tight turnaround. He told EW, I would get a tape of the show on Monday, write the music on Tuesday, record it on Wednesday, mail it in on Thursday, and Saturday we'd watch it on TV. The turnaround was fast. They were scrambling. That's basically our turnaround time for this show. <laughs> that's insane. That's yeah, that's nuts. People should not be working on that <laughs> on that schedule. Mother Spa's a machine, man. I love his work. That's insane. What else did he do? Has he done um aside from Rugrats? Did he do um some other kid adjacent or like kid show that's mostly for adults that he was involved with? I think he did some of the Wes Anderson stuff. Um, that makes sense, yeah. He did uh Clifford the Big Red Dog. The one with Martin Short? Uh, the show. Oh the, oh, the TV show. Oh. I read that big takedown of Martin Short the other day and it made me smile. You don't like Martin Short? No. Oh, man, dude, I loved I loved Jiminy Glick. I thought that show was f***ing hilarious. I, okay, parts of that were funny. I just can't. It can't sustain a there's, fool. There's some off. There's some off-the-cuff diss that he does to someone. Oh, it's the big sad-voiced loser from Ray Romano. 
Brad, whatever, with the sad eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's, he's, he prompts him with some question, and the guy's like, well, you're just getting that off the website. And short as Jiminy instantly goes, oh, because there's so many books written about you. <laughs> there's also a really great one of, of him just razzing Kurt Russell about the fact that Kurt Russell's middle name is Vogel. So he just keeps going, Vogel. Kurt Vogel Russell. And Kurt Russell just loses it. They were apparently really good friends, which is adorable. Are good friends. Oh, I like that. Yeah, when Martin Short's wife died, Kurt Russell went to the neighboring town and bought out an entire flower shop uh, and then went and bought vases for all of them by himself. Um, Goldie Hawn offered to help, and he said, no, this is something I have to do myself. And they oh. were they were going to put, uh, put her ashes in um, the like lake that their property went, and Kurt Russell lined the entire dock and walkway back to the house with flowers. Oh, that is. That so it's just like if you sweet. could inspire uh, Kurt Russell to do that, like you gotta, you're, you're a good guy. You're, I mean, you're, what, you're okay even, in my the, book. The piece was a takedown of his acting style, but had nothing but lovely things to say about him as a human being, Martin Short. So. Yeah, I haven't seen Only Murders in the Building, but yeah, man, I, yeah, I, I just, I just respect the the Jiminy Glick bit. You know, I love anyone who is just obnoxious to celebrities and and just punctures yeah. punctures that veil. You know. I like that um, the George Harrison anecdote you sent me from Martin Short's memoir where he um, went to see The Hunt for Red October at some famous person's house and George Harrison was invited. Uh, Who was the director? It was a it was a director. Oh, it was Dick Donner. It was Richard Donner. Yeah, Richard Donner. Goonies, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Richard Donner had a screening of the Hunt for Red October at his house and invited Martin Short and George Harrison, and they ended up next to each other at, in their home theater. And George Harrison asked permission to spark a joint. <laughs> no, it was Donner. And- it was Donner oh, sparked right. the Donner. joint and was passing it around. And George Harrison's reaction when he was confronted with the joint was, ah, the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> Smoked a joint, got high, and immediately started talking over the entire film. So he like and, Mystery Science Theater 3000 style. So, so yeah, so he and Martin Short like went to a different room and just like broed down... I think that got kicked out because George Harrison was saying, I can't watch Sean Connery in movies. He's just too damn famous. It's like watching a beetle. And, every, and, you know, him and Martin Short are like stoned out of their minds and they both laugh. And then, yeah, then they kick him out. And then they were going to make plans to get lunch the next day. And Martin Short forgot that he had to fly somewhere and they never got lunch, which he was sad about. But then flash forward years later, after George Harrison died, Danny Harrison, who is a spitting image of his dad, walked up to Martin Short somewhere at some event he never met him and just hugged him and said explained my dad told me that if i was ever to meet anybody that meant a lot to me in my life to hug them and so he was giving him a hug for his late father george harrison which i think is great we love our (laughs) our tearjerker george harrison anecdotes on this show yeah exactly all right uh good luck using any of that where the are we (laughs) uh music for peewee's playhouse oh yeah kind of relates other famous musicians who wrote for Pee Wee's playhouse include george clinton which i need to hear that todd rundgren makes a lot of sense van dyke parks makes a ton of sense he did music for uh brave little toaster mitchell Froom, who i think has something to do with crowded house if i'm not mistaken mm. dweezil zappa makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense and i can't sorry my eyes are what's the last one i, I can't <laughs> my my uh, nemesis danny elfman 
I didn't realize how much you hated Danny Elfman until last episode. I just, it's like a, it's, it just reminds me of a, a Casio keyboard on the polka setting. <laughs> I cannot find with the song that George Clinton wrote for Pee Wee's Playhouse. Maybe he did it under a fake name. This is not a gimmicky segue. This is a real segue. I say that because the theme song to Pee Wee's Playhouse is credited to Ellen Shaw, but in reality, it's sung by Cindy Lauper, who I guess was doing her impression of Betty Boop. She admitted as much in her memoir, writing, Pee-wee wanted me to sing the theme song. I told him I would, but I couldn't have it under my name because I was going to put out True Colors, which had a serious tone. In our superficial world, people couldn't accept both at the same time. So I sang the theme using the pseudonym Ellen Shaw. And then Paul Rubens sent me back a tape that was so hilariously funny of me singing the theme with him in between saying, oh no, my career is ruined. Oh no, he's a nut. I love him. Oh man, the residents did some of the composing for this? I saw that and I didn't... Remind me who the residents are. They're like some art pop collective. Yeah, they're like one of the longest running avant-garde experimental bands out of San Francisco. They've been like since punk day one, um, really weird stuff. Uh, And just like weird pioneers in terms of um, different approaches. Like they put out a CD-ROM album uh at one point like ahead of anyone else and and a lot of multimedia stuff wow. yeah they're fascinating guys the eyeball heads that's their big thing they they've maintained right. their anonymity by uh performing in tuxedos and giant eyeball masks <laughs> that's horrifying you enjoy that and not Wee herman <laughs> so those are some of the musical names who've showed up on Wee's playhouse but there are also some future acting stars as well. Heigl, tell us about some of the folks who got their start on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Well, we mentioned Phil Hartman last week as Captain Carl. Jimmy Smits made an early career appearance as Conky the Repairman. Uh, John Singleton, Boys in the Hood director, right? Uh, yeah, served as the PA on, on the Playhouse set uh, five years before that movie. Cool. Rob Zombie <laughs> was also a PA around the same time that he formed White Zombie, which is... Uh, that's, you know, honestly, that makes more sense than I think you would think at first blush. Like, Zombie has that sort of uh, same Tim Burton fixation on, like, 50s B-horror, you know? Didn't he just direct something? I remember he, like, ruined something. Well, yeah, he just I rebooted loved. The Monsters with his wife. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I yeah. hate his movies. I, he's, I, don't, I don't like his movies at all, but I respect the purity of his vision. Um... <laughs> A pre-famed Lawrence Fishburne played Cowboy Curtis, and apparently Larry, was he credited as Larry at this point? Larry Fishburne? That, his whole career would have been different if he remained Larry. I think he's credited as Larry in Apocalypse Now, and maybe also Nightmare on Elm Street. That was like his first stage name, but... I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, he brought a, a level of intensity to the series that you would not expect. He told uh, Entertainment Weekly, I was in the D.C. area making Gardens of Stone, and I got this call that Paul wanted to see me. I had almost no hair on my head because I had been doing this military picture. I auditioned as a Yule Brenner-esque kind of cowboy, very dark <laughs> and serious. Rubens and the show's co-writer, John Paragon, both looked at me and said, could you lighten it up? <laughs> What? So wait, he he must be referencing. Did Joe Brenner do a lot of westerns, or did was he just the evil cowboy robot in Westworld? That's the only one I know. That is an incredibly specific energy to bring to a children's television show audition. The murderous cowboy robot from Westworld. God love you, Larry. 
Might have just been because he was bald, too. It might just be a bald mm. reference. Well, he got the role, uh, but he was absent for most of season one because he was filming the aforementioned best installment, in my opinion, of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, Dream Warriors, starring Patricia Arquette and uh, has an incredible theme song by Dawkin. Uh, <laughs> the band Dawkin. Anyone? Reba the Male Lady was played by the future Law & Order star Esapatha Murkison, who uh, struggled to adapt with the onset buffoonery. Much like Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey, she could not sanction the buffoonery. Uh, speaking on the bonus features of the Pee-wee's Playhouse Blu-ray collection, Murkison recalled that the mere sight of Rubens in his Pee-wee outfit made it hard for her not to laugh. She said from the first time they met on set, from that point on, I know that Paul knew he could make me laugh, and he tortured me. At one point, the director came over and said in this very low voice, I need to get this shot. How do I get this shot? And I said, well, I can't look at Paul. <laughs> I really thought I was going to lose the job. Ah, great one. Uh, Natasha Leone. The first season of Pee-wee's Playhouse featured Sean Weiss, later who starred as Goldberg in Mighty Ducks as one of the Playhouse gang. And future, well, she's like a Netflix star at this point, right? She did uh, Orange is the New Black, Russian Doll. Oh, Poker Face isn't on Netflix. But yeah, streaming icon Natasha Leone. Have you seen Russian Doll? No. He would love that show. She's just doing Columbo. She's really leaning into the New York accent on it. it just It's so great. Uh, just, uh, just, just one more thing, though, by the way. <laughs> while, while I have you. That's a hell of a Peter Falk. I'm doing Natasha Leone, but... Because she has really? the smoke, she adds the smoker's rasp to it. Yeah, uh, but oh, it's great. She's it's so good, great show. But she, they, the two of them, only lasted a season. And uh, you, you posit two uh, explanations for this. One is that they were fired for being too rambunctious. Great note. Um, it's like a Bon Scott's death certificate, read "Death by Misadventure." I wouldn't mind to read "Death by Rambunctiousness." I just recorded a, 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 a narrative voiceover where I referenced death by misadventure. That's what Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones officially died. I think it was like a British thing. Like they did yeah. just like how they classified like overdoses and drunks. Um, but the more likely reason is that CBS simply moved production during the second season from New York City to L.A., necessitating a new playhouse gang of children, including Allison Porter, who went on to star in 1991's Curly Sue. What are you laughing at, you son of a bitch? It requires a bit of explanation, but you know what? Why stop now? Um, on the whole death by misadventure thing, I, I had a friend who worked at a factory uh, in in high school, and he was a very, very big guy, and he, he prided himself on being able to, to lift things. And there was a big um, barrel, and everyone was telling him not to lift this barrel, and he, he, he did it anyway. And he lifted it, and it, it, he was top heavy now and he, he tripped and fell backwards and the top fell off the barrel and it was filled with rainbow sprinkles <laughs> and they came and just washed over his head and face and i was just thinking if if, if he choked and suffocated to death on rainbow sprinkles it, it like that's death by misadventure i'm imagining like a very dramatic moment where like uh it's like chief in one flew over the cuckoo's nest like lifting <laughs> lifting the water fountain but it just he's was it it was the ice cream sprinkles ice cream sprinkles yeah, yeah. God, what a way to go. Uh, though Leon's time on the show was short-lived, it did make an impact on her. She recalled in a 2018 interview with Entertainment Weekly, nothing makes me feel legitimately cool quite so much as the fact that I was on that show. She stayed in contact with Rubens throughout the years, mentioning in another EW video that he sends the best gifts. Gifts or gifts? Oh, I'm not getting into this. 
I'm not. I'm not getting into this. I say now. I now I don't even remember what I say. No, is it I gifts think, as in like present or like oh, reaction gifts? Oh, reaction gifts. Okay, yeah. Conan cool. O'Brien said something about that too. Like on somebody's birthday, he would just blow up their phone by sending like old timey animation gifts and yeah. stuff all day. It's it's gifts, by the way. It's not just it gifts. Okay, you can't you gifts. can't. I, people who say that are that's a willful misinterpretation of the English language. It stands for <laughs> graphics interchangeable format. You use the same sound as the words when you're pronouncing an acronym. It's not graphics interchangeable format. People who say GIF. I don't know what to tell you. You're wrong. It's black and white issue. That's not the way the word sounds. You're gonna say, what do you? uh, You're gonna pronounce ATF instead of alcohol, tobacco, and fire. You're gonna pronounce it ATF. You know. But that's an act. That's you're you're spelling it out. It's like NASA is like something that you say as a new word, as opposed to like FBI. Yeah, but that still doesn't. That still gets at my point. Like you're, it's National Air. FBI. NASA. No one. No. Yeah, but no one pronounces it NASA. NASA. I'm sure there's an... There's still hard A sounds. There's still the vowel sounds that are present in those words. Aerospace. NASA. Not NASA. <laughs> not how the English sh- language works. I'm sorry. I'm sure I'm there's, I'm sure in the there's an explanation. sand, people. I, I, I don't care. None of this... Po- I go on this, Henry Higgins tease none of right this, now. None of this postmodern every interpretation is valid. No one's feelings get hurt. <laughs> it, it bullshit. That's not the way words work. Full stop. Cold-blooded murder <laughs> of the English tongue. <laughs> I, I'll, die, I'll die on this headphones. hill. I'll die on this hill. It's 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 wrong. It's black and white. Has the world gone I, mad? We must have standards. I'm sorry. Like you can't. This isn't Nom. <laughs> there are rules. Market zero. Uh, <laughs> after Ruben's death, Natasha Leone posted on Twitter: "Love you so much, Paul." Thank you for my career and your forever friendship all these years and for teaching us what a true original is. That is true. And that's why I like Paul Rubens. True original. Yeah. That is true. Uh, Speaking of the location change, it's probably for the best that production of the show moved from New York to L.A. in its second season because the set in New York was built on the fifth floor of a Soho loft that had once been a sweatshop. Sewing machines still was, still was. <laughs> sewing, yeah, sewing machines had to be cleared out before the set could be built, and air conditioning had to be pumped in from a truck five stories below on the street because the room was so stuffy. George McGrath, who was a writer and puppeteer on the show, later told Entertainment Weekly, "The building was a sweatshop. If the elevator opened on a floor before hours, you'd literally see a thousand Asian women on sewing machines." Rob Zombie <laughs> added, "It was this cramped mess. It looked so unprofessional." Supervising producer Steve Oaks also observed, Paul sweats a lot, so we went out and rented one of those air conditioning trucks that cools off jets while they're on the tarmac. At one point, everyone was wearing parkas and had colds in the middle of August. That's like uh, the the shoot for the thing when they were shooting on, yeah, uh, yeah, bouncing back and forth between intense freezer-cooled set and the LA heat. Uh, Rubens exerted a Jerry Lewis-like auteurist level of control over the set and its elaborate designs. Paul had a background as a visual artist and painter, and he brought that to bear through the art direction on the show. He employed artists like Gary Panter, Rick Heitzman, and Wayne White as designers, and together they approached the set like an evolving installation. Panter would later tell Rolling Stone in 1987, Paul's got a strong sense of everything he likes. He's really smart. 
and he's a collector of all the kind of stuff that's on the set. So he knows that genre inside and out. He's got a great collection of children's textbook from the 30s and 40s. His old house in L.A. was covered with toys and art and objects. Yeah, this would cause uh, legal problems for him down the road, but we'll, we'll get to that later. A friend would describe the aesthetics of Pee-wee's Playhouse to the Sun Sentinel as atomic 50s. Pee-wee Herman is completely into bad taste, completely into cheese. It's a very Jane Mansfield mentality. Wayne White would tell ArtNews.com, My references were old Fisher-Price toys and little golden books. We were trying to start anew to find this niche of design that hadn't been poured over a million times. We were doing a lot of nostalgic kind of things because we were all baby boomers and had grown up with the same kinds of toys and had the same kinds of memories. But I mainly thought of the packaging that the toys would come in. I was also thinking of old textile designs from the late 40s and early 50s. For wallpapers, I was mostly inspired by a lot of old shirts and ties, especially the Polynesian wallpaper that's around Mr. Window. In this same article, Gary Panter, who appears to be the chief designer on the show, talks about how they saw themselves as essentially straight-laced rebels, like Pee-wee and Big Adventure, who saw themselves as revolting against the brash contemporary style. He said, when I got to L.A. in the punk rock days, I became best friends with Matt Groening. We were both determined to subvert the media. And I wrote a manifesto about it in 1979, encouraging artists to infiltrate media and take the design of children's television and TV shows out of the hands of the money men. And that happened to a great extent. Pee-wee and a few breakthrough shows like Ren and Stimpy and The Simpsons transformed the video landscape. But it wasn't all heavy-handed missions and manifestos. According to Wayne White, it was a dream f***ing job. I didn't have any responsibilities other than to be creative. I was a child. I wasn't an adult at all. That was handled by the producers and the directors and the assistant directors and the cameramen and all that. We would just play like idiots. It's almost embarrassing how irresponsible I felt at the time, you know, and everyone just indulged us. We would just sit around and smoke weed all day, laugh, and it was just f***ing incredible. Just the best job you can imagine. Must be nice. I just, God, it, it makes me so furious. <laughs> the, the landscape in which we live, where we're like constantly forced to do more, produce more with less resources, and a big streaming giant can come in and just buy your streamer and delete your life's work that no longer, no longer pops up on IMDb. And we got so much incredible art out of this environment where shockingly, Artists were just allowed to be f***ing artists. Like, what a, what a concept. I do have a question for you, though. Go on. If you write a manifesto, yeah. are you automatically insufferable? I mean, what, what do you got? You got Karl Marx, you got the Unabomber, you got Jerry Maguire. The Futurists. Uh, is there anyone who's written a manifesto that would buck that trend? Um. Yeah, I guess manifesto does kind of have a... Dint. A negative connotation. Yeah, a dint to it. Uh, hmm. Tweet at us. If you if you or a loved one has a positive manifesto you'd like to share, oh, God, we're going to get like 17. No, we're not going to get anyone. No one's going to tweet at me. But uh, <laughs> It's like the Jeff Foxworthy thing. If you've written a manifesto, eh, it might be awful. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Paul Rubin's exacting attention to detail wound up costing him both emotionally and financially. It feels like financially should have gone before emotionally there, but yeah, (laughs) just a note for the future. Uh, Most Saturday morning cartoons were produced for about 250,000 an episode or what David Zaslov makes per second, I think, in today's media landscape. Uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse costs somewhere between $350,000 or $515,000 per half hour. That is truly insane. Yeah, what's the average cost of a half hour? I mean, that sounds about... Like, these days, commercials go for way more than that. Single camera half hours on broadcast and cable. Oh, this was in 2017. 1.5 to 3 mil. Sounds about right. Hmm. All right. I stand corrected. It's not insane. Paul was on the hook for all of that money. That's crazy, though. He told Rolling Stone in 2016, Originally, I lost quite a bit of money on Pee-wee's Playhouse. I was responsible financially for Pee-wee's Playhouse. 
So when it went over budget, not if it went over budget, when it went over budget, that came out of my pocket. I don't want to mention a figure, but we had one season that was over budget by a lot of money. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. Not a little bit. I'm a perfectionist. I want to rebuild the whole playhouse door if it's too big or the wrong color. So I feel like I'm a great producer, but I also have distinct limitations in that department because I will always spend more money and not sacrifice quality. So it went over budget a lot, like every season. At the time in the 80s, he would get very testy about this. When a reporter for Rolling Stone mentioned an episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse cost as much as a primetime show, Rubens responded by pulling the children are our future card. Aren't our children more important than ourselves? Why shouldn't Saturday morning children's programs be just as expensive as the things we watch at night? Uh, they shot this show on film before mm. transferring it to tape for broadcast, which could have saved them some money. Uh, Rubens paid himself scale, though. I, I respect that. Uh, one of the directors of the animated segments, Philip Trumbo, would admit that though the Dinosaur Family segments had more revisions than anything I've ever worked on professionally... It won an enemy. <laughs> Good for him. But Pee-wee's Playhouse didn't just cost Rubens financially. It also came damn near close to costing him his sanity, too. One thing I didn't realize as a kid was just how hard he worked to keep up the illusion that Pee-wee Herman was a real person. You'll notice that Rubens' name doesn't actually appear in the Pee-wee's Playhouse credits. Instead, they simply list Pee-wee Herman as himself. It became this Andy Kaufman-style performance piece, basically, with Paul Rubens building Pee-wee up as a distinct entity from himself. And this was done as a conscious creative decision with his management team early on. To borrow a <laughs> phrase from Ghostbusters, there is no Paul Rubens, only Pee-wee Herman. For years, he maintained this persona for all of his public appearances, from talk shows to WrestleMania. He refused to be photographed out of character. And this became difficult at points because, for example, he was a heavy smoker, so he went to great lengths to avoid being photographed with a cigarette in his mouth or even drinking sodas, fearing that he would be a poor influence on the children who admired him or admired Pee-wee. Even interviews were done as Pee-wee. As Bob Plunkett, a journalist based in Rubens' hometown of Sarasota, later wrote in Sarasota Magazine, no interviews with Paul were ever allowed. No photos of him were available. No allusions to him were permitted. The hometown boy makes good story I kept wanting to do was always squashed, and with what I considered to be a very heavy hand. We were even told that if we persisted, we would not be allowed to publish any pictures, including ones of Pee-wee. <laughs> Fellow journalist T. Gertler made a similar observation in his 1987 profile for Rolling Stone. The ground rules allowed no questions about Paul Rubens or about Pee-wee Herman's work methods. His office explained that I would be talking to Pee-wee but he wouldn't be using his peewee voice. <laughs> I wondered if I should use a different voice. I thought of checking Sybil and the Three Faces of Eve out of the library. <laughs> sort of famously books about people with multiple personality disorder. Uh, Paul or Peewee or whoever discussed this himself in the Rolling Stone article saying, the problem to me is that I have two names and beyond that, there's not much of a story. This feels more right. I'm able to do all the things I want to do with this arrangement much better. There are so many things I would like to do, so many people I probably am, that it becomes a lot less complicated for me. At the time, this all added to his reputation. Uh, Vanity Fair journalist James Walcott wrote in 1987, Paul Rubens might be one of the few remaining performance artists who still believe in secrets, distance, and mystique. He's a contained <laughs> dynamo. He isn't out to spill his innards. 
Rubens himself would offer an explanation towards the end of his life that relied less on high concepts and smoke and mirrors. He said, There was a higher likability factor to Pee Wee Herman, and I made a decision to, I, I guess I just became Pee Wee for a while. Because I couldn't figure out how to make it in Hollywood. I didn't feel like I had anything to separate me from anyone else in town. This sounds really weird, but I was actually thinking of that musical number in Gypsy. You gotta have a gimmick. There are these strippers singing that song, and I was thinking about that and going, a gimmick, yes, that's good. Which is probably closer to the truth. But all of this took a toll on Paul <laughs> Rubin's parents, Milton and Judy Rubenfeld, to whom he was very close. As his mom told Rolling Stone in 1987, I'm not sure where Paul ends and Pee Wee begins. He'd already changed his name from the family name of Rubenfeld to Rubens. By the mid-80s, she was having a hard time keeping up. She said, it's real weird. When you're a Mrs. Rubens or a Mrs. Rubenfeld and a Mrs. Herman, it gets very confusing. Paul actually created fictionalized versions of Pee-wee's parents, Herman and Honey Herman. Yes, Herman Herman. In order to keep up the illusion that Pee-wee was a real person. Uh, so his actual parents had strict guidelines to follow if they attended premieres or charity events or any other functions. They were instructed not to identify themselves, not to associate with Paul slash Pee-wee in public, and definitely not to talk to the press. Uh, despite what could easily be construed as a massive public rejection, Paul remained a very dedicated son. He even moved back to Sarasota to help care for his dad after he was diagnosed with cancer in the early 2000s. Uh, considering he literally lived and breathed this character, you would think that writing episodes of Pee-wee's Playhouse was second nature to Paul. And that's sort of true. He did find it very easy to tap into that childlike part of his brain. Uh, this was also helped by games of inter-office hide-and-seek that he would play to distract himself and his staff from the task of writing. Uh, much like Mr. Rogers, Paul had an innate sense of how to talk to children. Although, unlike Fred Rogers, he didn't make it his crusade to better the lives of children. He told Rolling Stone in 2014, One of the things I feel the show did really well was that we never talked down to kids. It was a show that assumed its viewers were very young but very smart. Never seemed like a kid's show if you were actually a kid. That's true. That's one of the things I liked about it at that age. One of the most memorable moments of the series, I always remembered this, and I kind of almost thought I Mandela affected it, but then I would read recaps of, you know, Paul Rubens after he died, and a lot of people <laughs> mentioned this bit, so I'm glad it wasn't just me. Uh, there was the old, you know, oh, I really love something. Oh, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it? There were so many great jokes, you know, so many stupid childlike jokes in that show. I like, also, you know, like, no, you are, but what am I? I? Well, that was like his catchphrase, but when I was watching the, the movie clips, I was like, oh, 90% of like the shit I heard on the playground growing up came from this. <laughs> well, I don't think it came from this. I think he took it from the playground is my guess. Like, I think they were just things that kids always said. And then he like, legitimize isn't the right word, but then he would make it part of this bratty Pee-wee character. He became a lot less bratty on Pee-wee's Playhouse. And the big adventure and all the, the stuff that he would do on Letterman, he was definitely like a bratty kid. That whole description you had, to use the way you indelibly put it, uh, a child throwing rocks at birds. <laughs> <laughs> that That's less in the Playhouse. He's much yes. more of a, of a genial eccentric mm -hmm. in Pee-wee's Playhouse. But yeah, there's the whole, uh, you know, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it thing? He took this joke to his very literal conclusion by staging a wedding ceremony with a fruit salad, which included a bowl of fruit wearing a veil. And they had somebody act as the priest doing the vows. And they stuck a microphone out in front of uh, the, um, the, 
fruit salad, who said nothing. So the priest bent its ear down close and said, oh, he says, I do. So uh, I remember that was pretty surreal and weird. And, you know, I, I, I stand the commitment to the bit. I think that's admirable. Paul continued to Rolling Stone. I really love kids. I'm always knocked out by kids, how funny they are and what they appreciate. <laughs> the greatest moments in the writing room were always when myself or someone else would come up with something that would make us say, this is going to make a six-year-old fall off the couch. It was so fun and so rewarding to do something where the goal was just to make kids laugh, entertain them, and show them a world that embraces creativity and nonconformity. He also pushed the envelope every now and then. You may recall a scene where he unpacks groceries for the camera, pulls out a jug of milk, then another jug of milk, and then lemonade, a reference to the old grade school verse that Pee-wee completed by explaining where fudge is made. Despite these barely coded nods to childhood grotesquery, if that's a word, CBS had surprisingly few notes during the production of the show. Rubens maintained creative control throughout the five seasons of Pee-wee's Playhouse and only recalled a handful of incidents where the network's standard and practices department demanded changes. He recalled to the AV Club, in the first episode, the network said, you can't stick that pencil in that potato because pencils are sharp and you might encourage kids to stab things. <laughs> so we didn't do that. And was, there was that was like, was like in uh, uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark where they wouldn't let kids use matches? Oh, right. Couldn't, yeah. couldn't, couldn't show kids striking matches on TV. Oh, and that's why they threw the like special igniting powder magic dust. Yes, <laughs> yes. There was also an episode they got a letter about where there was a fire in the playhouse and a firefighter showed up and he and Ms. Yvonne were flirting. And he said, you have to have a smoke detector. And she said, I have one in my bedroom above the bed. They asked us to change that for subsequent airings of the show. So we went in and looped dialogue over it. So instead she said, I have one in my kitchen. I put it back to the original version for the DVD release. And there was a shot of a bathroom that we held for a really long time. And you could hear Pee-wee peeing. They asked us to tone down the sound of the peeing and add a score so it was a little less graphic. All the changes they asked us to make seemed really reasonable to me. And we accommodated them. I think in 45 episodes, there were only maybe three other changes they ever asked for. Uh, one of these was they forbade Pee-wee from merging from a bathroom with a trail of toilet paper sticking to his shoe. And I also forbade him from saying the phrase, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Hey and also making sun tea because of concerns that viewers didn't know about the dangers of bacteria growth in making sun tea, which I didn't know either. I thought sun tea was a piss thing. I think, no, it's like making iced tea in the sun. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's like a 30 Rock thing about somebody peeing in jars. One hour in the sun versus five minutes in hot. Oh, wow. Okay. Hey, uh, speaking of uh, talking heads, I just got a text from my friend, uh, my friend Morgan. Did you know that Tina Weymouth uh, believes that David Byrne's an actual murderer? Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, this is per Salon in 2003. She heard at a party that Byrne had killed a boy in Brazil using voodoo. <laughs> she wanted us to play Hardy Boys and solve the case. David is a vampire in a way, she told me. Psychics have seen him and they say that he just has a firewall around him. I want to do a top 10 rock stars who have gotten involved with voodoo. Because supposedly when Guns N' Roses got a... Did I, ever, I did I tell you this in the in the GNR episode about Guns and Axel and Voodoo? I don't remember. I know we talked about it with Michael Jackson on well, there's I think a it was two, the first episode. I think on Hook. There's a two-parter to this story. The one is that in the uh Large and Grace's band against me had to put out when they were first like they were on one of their smaller labels, they when they're kind of coming up, 
they put out this record, uh, this live tour DVD called We're Never Going Home. And in it, they do an interview with another, a guy in another band who shared like a management personnel or something with Guns N' Roses. And he was, he was relaying the story that when Axel heard about the Against Me record reinventing Axl Rose, he was so yeah. furious that he created voodoo dolls of the band Against Me and utilized them. And then follow up when I was researching GNR at page six about their like uh, fan bootlegging selling drama, I managed to get a hold of their A and R original A and R guy Tom Zuto, and he told me all this incredible off the record. And then when I called him, I wanted to get it on the record and set up an actual interview. He ghosted me, and he was <laughs> telling me how that all this voodoo stuff comes from. They got a manager in the mid nineties, who I think is from Venezuela. And the guy's mom was like a, uh, like a voodoo priest or something or like a priestess or like seriously believed in like indigenous Venezuelan witchcraft. And that's where all of the, all of Axel's interest in voodoo came from. So what were we talking about? Oh, my favorite talking heads anecdote is, um, I think Brian Eno talking about, uh, he's like, the thing you'd have to understand is that David Byrne is a genuine eccentric. I remember we were walking. Yeah, they get mugged. He's like, <laughs> my vision of that night is David Byrne being dragged off into the shrubs by a gang of men and just going, oh, no. <laughs> that was, uh-oh. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. Like a cartoon <laughs> character. Uh-oh. <laughs> like his arms waving around. Yeah, that's so it. funny to me. <laughs> um, Pee-wee's Playhouse. Voodoo or not. <laughs> premiered on September 13th, 1986. It's 37 years ago this week. At the time, most kids' shows were essentially flimsy vehicles to sell toys, so Ruben's creation attracted a great deal of attention from critics who were fascinated by this postmodernist fever dream. Man, I want to do a thing about, like, do you remember in the 80s and 90, early 90s how much adult was co-opted into children's animation? I think I talked about this before, but Rambo, RoboCop, Aliens, and the, the Toxic Avenger and Swamp Thing were all turned into animated shows to hawk action figure lines. Not a single... Rambo? Yeah. Not a single one of those source material movies or comic books were appropriate for children. Comic books, you could maybe make the edge case, but there is a Swamp Thing plot line where his arch nemesis... Uh, comes back from the dead and possesses his stepdaughter's husband and rapes her. And there's also one where Swamp Thing grows a hallucinogenic fruit and feeds it to that same woman, Abigail Arcane, and they have a, a crazy acid-tripping fever dream sex. He is, plant, he is a plant. I think I have it right here, actually. Nah, I'm not going to look that up. Here's one I made earlier. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I dude, I remember being a kid and getting the aliens action figures. Like, don't you remember that? Did you remember no, seeing that I mean, advertise aliens and predators? Shit? Predator, no. that's six. And like, that's why I saw Alien when I was six because my dad was like, "Well, you're getting these action figures. Do you want to watch the original movie?" And I had nightmares about it for like five years after that. Like, legitimately, I finally stopped having nightmares about an alien growing inside me and coming bursting out through my chest. Five years later. And it was because of these action figures that were marketed to children. Insane. I was more of a Thomas the Tank Engine guy. Because of Ringo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times described Pee-wee as sweetly loony and unpredictable. 
gentle, yet always tiptoeing on the edge of devastating absurdity. <laughs> By the grace of God, go both of us. Yeah. He's a one-man force battling the plague of boredom that has settled on Saturday morning programming for children. One element that was frequently commented on was the fact that the characters on the show came from very diverse cultural backgrounds. The show won a total of 15 Emmys throughout its five-season run, including two for Miss Yvonne's hair. Created by legendary hairstylist Sally Hirschberger, who is famous for creating Meg Ryan's late 80s... Uh, Poodle hair. Yeah, shag, shag cut. Uh, Hirschberger was at one point the most expensive hairstylist in New York City, charging $600 for a cut uh, in the 80s, which is like, what, 4000 today? <laughs> Oscar-winning makeup uh, V. Neal, a judge on Sci-Fi's Face Off, won her first major award, a daytime Emmy, for her work on Pee-wee's Playhouse. And then she went on to win Academy Awards for Best Makeup for Beetlejuice, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Ed Wood. Pee-wee, though crucially not Paul Rubens, was honored with a star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame in 1988, gotten on the cover of Life and Rolling Stone magazines, and the keynote speech at the Republican National Convention during which he was compared to Michael Dukakis. <laughs> it's hard to think of a more 1980s sentence than yeah. that. Yeah. Football players did the peewee dance after scoring a touchdown. Uh, by the end of the 1980s, it was estimated from, what is this, that Q research, that, that one mm -hmm. place that does all this market research, that 96% of all Americans recognized peewee's name. But perhaps most touching to peewee, or to Rubens, was the accolade that he earned props from live-action children's TV legend Bob Captain Kangaroo Keishan. That was a show I watched, Captain Kangaroo. I love Captain Kangaroo. You watched Captain Kangaroo. Kangaroo? Yeah. Where did you... It was not on where I lived. Oh, really? It was yeah. on for us, yeah. Uh, in fact, Captain Kangaroo was such a big fan that he reviewed Pee-wee's VHS release in 1996 for Entertainment Weekly, praising its awesome production values, with the possible exception of The Muppets, you can't find such creativity anywhere on TV. Star Paul Rubens is an absolute genius, but I am personally offended by his spastic approach. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a one-two punch little, of criticism there. Yeah. yeah. A child at, lead with the good. Yeah. A child at home imitating his motions all day could drive parents crazy. That's the point. Yeah. When I made Captain Kangaroo, we would never do segments like the one in which Pee-wee tells viewers to scream at the top of their lungs whenever they hear the day's secret <laughs> word. Compared to what's available for kids, though, programs that send the message that violence is an appropriate solution to a problem, these criticisms pale. Pee-wee is a benign character who treats his friends with respect. Another fan was David Bowie, who apparently invited Pee-wee, Paul, to open for him on tour twice... And Paul turned him down both times with the all-timer reaction, sorry, Bowie, I'm not an opening act. He, he would later allow it was one of his few professional regrets. Rubens used his growing notoriety to keep eccentric company. He became close to Doris Duke, the billionaire tobacco heiress, at one point known as the richest woman in the world, and became close to her adopted daughter, Chandy Hefner. Chandy Hefner. They married each other one night in what's been described as an impromptu mock ceremony at a dinner party in 1989 at Duke's Diamond Head Estate. It was attended by Jim Neighbors, a.k.a. Gomer Pyle, and also Imelda Marcos, the first lady of the Philippines. Rubens later said, I still have the temporary marriage license signed by Imelda Marcos, a woman 
party to innumerable human rights violations. And a lot of shoes. And our life story was recently turned into a musical by David Byrne, Here Lies Love. See, I'm taking this all as a sign that we got to do Stop Making Sense. Uh, so, was Paul Rubens gay? <laughs> Segway. <laughs> Jim Neighbors was famously closeted in Hollywood. He was close to Rock Hudson for years. And the rumor among many gossip columnists was that the two were romantically involved. It was such a widely reported story that at one point in the early 70s, someone in the pair's social circle sent out a gag wedding invite to people to witness the marriage of Rock Hudson and Jim Neighbors, at which Hudson would take the surname of Neighbors' most famous character, the aforementioned Gomer Pyle, thus becoming Rock Pyle, which is a hell of a setup for a medium funny gag. <laughs> like a Flintstones grade pun. Yeah, yeah. Supposedly, as a result of this, the pair maintained their distic in public for the rest of their lives. It was a different time. Yeah. Huh. Uh, there are some who made assumptions about Paul Rubin's sexuality based on his social circle, which... Uh, Included Jim, Jim in, Neighbors. That's probably what we should have prefaced this with instead of just segueing right into Jim Neighbors <laughs> and Rock Hudson. Many assume Rubens himself was gay due to, in large part to the uh, camp sensibilities of Pee Wee. But he never came out in his lifetime and was, in fact, linked to several women. Uh, and it's unclear if that was for publicity reasons, though. One of his long-term girlfriends, downtown NYC cool girl Debbie Mazar, uh, say that their relationship was never consummated. But Rubens never commented on it. And with that in mind, we will respect his wishes and refrain from commenting further. The popularity of Pee-wee's Playhouse led to the inevitable influx of merch. Party supplies, clothes, bedsheets, lunchboxes, trading cards, costumes, a full-size replica of Cherry the Chair, a playset that was so realistic he used it to block out episodes prior to shooting, and a talking peewee doll that sold more than a million units. I think I've seen a good number of that, those things sitting around at flea markets. Paul Rubens held a tremendous amount of control over this side of his creation as well. Since he was losing so much money on the expensive show, for which, again, he paid himself scale as an actor, the idea was that he'd make up through it for merchandising and syndication deals. But this was complicated by the fact that his standards were just as high for the merch as they were for the design of his show. For example, he sent the aforementioned Pee-wee doll back to the manufacturers with notes a total of eight times until he was satisfied. Sometimes his rigid adherence to quality came back to bite him. This was the case for his proposed Pee-wee-branded cereal. He wanted to make a fruity breakfast cereal, similar to his own childhood favorite, Tricks. But in classic madcap fashion, he teamed up with Purina, the dog food company, to make Pee-wee Chow, a dog food-themed cereal for kids. <sighs> uh, he followed his muse. I'll give him that. The commercial was set to feature a 1950s-style mother pouring a bowl on the floor while kids crawl up and eat it like dogs. Shockingly, this made it all the way to the prototype phase, eventually failing at the final hurdle when it failed a taste test. The ever-responsible Rubens wanted the cereal to be made with all natural ingredients and flavorings like fruit juices, thus repulsing the kids who were the target audience and craved products, I guess, made with high fructose corn syrup. God, what a bizarre series of sentences I just read. <laughs> Dog food, fine. All natural fruit juice, pass. Uh, no, no. Uh, around this time, Paul Rubens began production on the second Pee Wee Herman movie, 1988's Big Top Pee Wee, 
The idea, presumably born from his childhood in Sarasota, the winter headquarters of Ringling Brothers, where he dreamed of growing up and joining the circus. Directed by Grease director Randall Kleiser, it marked the feature film debut of Dustin Diamond, who would make his first appearance on Saved by the Bell as Screech Powers just a few months after the movie's release, and Benicio Del Toro, who played Duke the Dog-Faced Boy. <laughs> I'm not over the fact that there was a world where Dustin Diamond and Benicio Del Toro shared a screen together. That's insane. Do you ever know about the Dog-Faced Boy? No. T- tell me. <laughs> he was a real guy. Uh, it was Russian. His name was Fedor Jeftichu. And he was a P.T. Barnum guy. If you look up pictures of him, he looks remarkably like Michael London in I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Uh, he had the medical condition hypertrichosis, which is abnormal mm. hair growth, which is what a lot of people, where a lot of folktales from werewolves actually come from. Aww. He was a polymath. He spoke Russian, German, and English. Uh, and was toured around as part of the Barnum sideshow. But that's where the dog-faced boy bit comes from. Tell me he had a happy rest of his life. Please tell me. Uh, well, he didn't he, die one of those carny deaths. Uh, well, he was brought to the States in 84, and he died uh, 20 years later in Greece. So Wait, he was doing all that like in the 80s, like during our lifetime? This wasn't some like, turn of the century? No, oh, 18- 1880s. Oh. <laughs> oh, I was going to say that. Yeah, that would have been a bummer. Huh. All right. He traded up, it sounds like, right? Right. I have to believe that. I desperately want to believe that. All right. Well, moving on. I, I never actually watched Big Top Pee Wee. I, I, we're not going to spend much time there. Arguably better received than this Pee Wee sequel film was this 1988 Christmas special. The third season of Pee Wee's Playhouse consisted of just two regular episodes due to a Writers Guild of America strike, but it also contained the aforementioned primetime special that included all manner of kitsch kings and queens, Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello of all the 60s beach party movies, Charo, the staple of 60s and 70s talk shows and variety TVs, incredible acoustic guitar player. Mm -hmm which has just been outshone by, I think, the way that she would pronounce things, if I recall. I think that was the bit. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Grace Jones, Katie Lang, Dinah Shore, Little Richard, Cher, hmm. the Del Rubio triplets, Magic Johnson, Princess Zsa Zsa. I, I, I don't know. If Is that, that different from Zsa Zsa Gabor? That's a great question. I don't know. I just Googled Princess Zsa Zsa and Zsa Zsa Gabor is the only thing that came up. So I'm going to assume it's just Zsa Zsa Gabor, some kind of affectionate honorific. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, Joan Rivers, and the UCLA Men's Choir. It was so well received that Pee Wee considered doing a second special for the fourth season of Pee Wee's Playhouse called Pee Wee's Playhouse Goes Hawaiian. Uh, Another Playhouse episode idea that was tossed out was a parody of the Patty Duke show, where Pee-wee visits his look-alike country cousin, Patty Duke show. Patty Duke famously played twins. Uh, by this point, Pee-wee was... If, if the incredible fever dream of a cast for the Pee-wee Christmas special is any indication, Pee-wee Herman was starting to suffer from burnout due to the strain of overseeing a feature film, a weekly TV show, a massive overblown holiday special, a burgeoning merchandise empire, all while pretending to be a bizarre man-child during every public moment of his life. <laughs> And rejecting his family publicly. Well, when you put so, it like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his work meant that he really couldn't sleep or have a personal life. Like me. He was working from the moment he woke up until the moment he fell asleep. One friend said he didn't have a life. It was the most exhausting thing. 
It also prevented him from enjoying the fruits of his labors, which is very sad. He told Rolling Stone in 2014, You might find this hard to believe, but I got virtually no feedback the whole time we were making Pee-wee's Playhouse. In the ensuing years, since we stopped making it, I've met hundreds of fans, from little kids to grown-ups, who watched it as kids when the show was originally on. But I was so busy with the making of it that I just didn't have much of a life outside of the show. I was very rarely in situations where I'd meet fans. It was just staggering when I finally did start to hear all that stuff, because I just didn't have an outside picture of it at all. Uh, oh cool, you're sticking me with all the porn theater stuff. Yeah, I'm just gonna riff on that. Okay. Uh, there's a common misconception that Pee-wee's Playhouse was canceled in the wake of Ruben's porn theater bust in July 1991, but that's not true. The show had been off the air for a year by that time. The network had, in fact, asked him to continue, but according to an interview we gave with EW, I just politely said no. It was time to take a year off. I had actually made a list of things I wanted to do. Learn Spanish, learn to play the sax. I never did any of them. <laughs> His mother told Sarasota Magazine that he had long become sick of the character of Pee-wee, which he'd initially intended to be a platform that would lead to other roles and a serious acting career. Don't you think he feels a little silly, his mother said, a grown man dressing up in that suit? And, you know, understandably, he was exhausted by maintaining the Pee-wee facade 24-7, uh, fearing that it would not only eclipse his own career, but his own existence. Paul controlled every aspect of the show, from its concepts to its writing to its direction and its production. And he also dreaded all the necessary work that came outside of taping as well. For example, he found meeting terminally ill Make-A-Wish children uh, very tough. I mean, he always met their requests, but it understandably troubled them greatly. The Beatles had a similar experience where they, you know, obviously wanted to do what they could for these kids, but they just felt so powerless whenever, you know, it was like what they wanted to meet us and we'd make them happy for a little bit, but then we'd have to leave. And it was like, we wanted to just stay there with them and help them as much as you could, but you couldn't, there was nothing you could do. So, I mean, that, that's, I know it sounds heartless for me to say like, oh yeah, I hated meeting the sick kids, but it, it took a psychic toll on them. The final episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse aired on November 17th, 1990, and called Playhouse for Sale, it centers around the residents of the Playhouse coping with the frightening sight of a for sale sign outside. But eventually they realized that it was from a lemonade stand, and the Playhouse itself wasn't going to be sold. The episode ended with Pee-wee telling viewers, the Playhouse will always be here for everyone to play in, forever and ever and ever. On that, you have my word. And then everyone screamed real loud because word was the secret word of the day. That's cute. Yeah. Can you give me a peewee scream? I feel like I'm just doing the, hi, Jumbie. Like, wow, that's good. <laughs> it's hard to do. It is. <laughs> yeah. No, that's like. Hi. Uh, it's difficult to get that. No, I'm doing like Tom Waits. Well, he has the two voices. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's as close as I'm getting. Yeah, it's a, you. You have to like constrict your throat. I'm doing my. I, I damaged my throat the other night. We were doing a lot of Batman impressions because Lo had Dark Knight <laughs> on the other day when I came in. So it was a lot of like, "What do you want for dinner tonight?" Oh, that's good. Yeah, the secret is to sound out of breath. I think he has to push so much uh, air through his voice to get that friggin' Tom Waits voice that he does. That you like have to do Christian Bale Batman is like constantly being out of breath. <laughs> like, didn't the voice of Batman from the animated series uh, have asthma or something? Uh, Kevin, what's his name? Maybe. I thought he had more of like a sexy gentleman's gravel to him. Whereas <laughs> Christian Bale's just doing like full on death metal. <laughs> 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 
Where are they? <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Pee-wee took most of 1990 and the first part of 1991 off to basically have a well-deserved vacation as he attempted to figure out what to do next. He grew his hair and beard whenever the show was on hiatus, which had the benefit of making him unrecognizable. So he was pretty anonymous, which is surprising considering how famous the character Pee-wee was. Trips to Nantucket and Europe were in the works, as was a visit to his hometown of Sarasota, Florida. And on the evening of July 26, 1991, a Friday, he bought a ticket at the South Trail Cinema, an ex-art house cinema turned adult theater. 
On that night, it was playing a triple bill of Catalina 5-0 Tiger Shark, Nurse Nancy, and Turn Up the Heat. Somebody's going to win bar trivia for knowing what movie was being played when Paul Rubens was busted. Uh, I'm going to take a lot of details from what I'm about to say from EW's fairly exhaustive contemporary expose on Paul Rubens' arrest, as well as Bob Plunkett's retrospective piece for Sarasota Magazine from 2016. So Paul Rubens sat down in the movie theater, and also in the theater that night were four sheriff's deputies posed for a sting operation. You need four sheriff's deputies. In LAPD, man. What did that was the helicopter? No, Sarasota, Sarasota. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, I guess. Oh, yeah. I mean, no. Still, f- that. Yeah. I've been to yeah, Florida. That. Was that the best <laughs> use of your police department's time? Four uh, deputies at a porn theater. That point was made. We will get to that in the vehement defense of Pee Wee that we will we will get to shortly. But yeah, these four sheriff's deputies were in there uh, planning to bust anyone who was in there who was uh, a little too obvious about doing what people presumably go to a porn theater to do. Uh, The guy who ran the theater, I love this, apparently hated the cops because their, quote, undercover attire of t-shirts and cutoff jeans made them look markedly more scruffy than the rest of his clientele, (laughs) who he described as, quote, having a country club look. (laughs) <laughs> South Florida porn theater, but but we have we cater to an upper, <laughs> a higher level of clientele. Uh, oh, I would love it if a porn theater had a dress code. Yeah, you know, no white tees. <laughs> the cops hung out in the theater for five and a half hours that day. They got paid to sit in the movie theater and watch porn. Think about that. They arrested four men that day. Do you think they? Yeah. No. Well, I guess why not? It's the same way that like cops can speed and run red lights. Yeah, like, sure. Yeah, you're stop them. Yeah. Well, they're friends. They probably weren't sitting next to each other. That's true. Hmm. Hmm. Immediately prior to Pee Wee's arrival, they popped the brother of I shouldn't say pop. They <laughs> they busted the brother <laughs> of one of the city's most. Oh, oh man. They arrested. There we go. That's the word. They arrested the brother of one of the city's most prominent businessmen. Um. The arrest report for Paul Rubens is grossly specific, detailing how often he did what and when. Uh, As he was leaving the theater, he was stopped in the lobby by two officers who identified themselves and told him he was being placed under arrest. Then they escorted him out to the parking lot where, according to the police report, he told them, This is embarrassing. Can I show you some ID? He retrieved his wallet and showed them his license, but the whole alter ego thing came back to bite him in the ass since the cops didn't recognize his real name. Finally, he just came out and said, I'm Pee Wee Herman, (laughs) which is one of the funniest things a person could do after being arrested for masturbating in public. Yeah, I'm I'm Pee Wee Herman. Uh, According to deputies, he suggested that maybe he could do a charity benefit for the sheriff's office. The arresting officers didn't reject the offer, but they told him he had to go be arrested anyway. Rubens then reportedly defended himself by saying that he knew you weren't allowed to uh, fool around with other people in a theater, but he thought it was okay if you were, quote, by yourself. That tracks. He then asked, how can I handle this with the least amount of publicity? The cops presumably didn't know or didn't care one or the other. He was fingerprinted and photographed and charged with violating Florida state stature 800.03 exposure of sexual organs. The bail was $219 and he was $40 short. And in a, a Shakespearean twist, 
one of the officers at the station was a high school friend of his sister, and she ponied up the rest of the bail, for which she was suspended for one day, because apparently cops can't help pay bail for anyone other than immediate family. Did you know that? No. That's probably good. (laughs) So immediately after posting bail, he first flew to Nashville to stay with his aforementioned sister, who was an attorney, and then he called his old friend, the billionaire heiress Doris Duke, and asked to hide out in her New Jersey estate. I know that, you know, if I got arrested for something, I'd probably want a billionaire on my side. So, yeah, that's probably a good move. So he went to her New Jersey estate and he said, the first day I woke up there, the staff had done what they do for any guest, which is put out all the daily publications. Unfortunately, on this day, they were filled with his mugshot and headlines like the New York Post's famous O-Pee-Wee with his really quite scary mugshot with the long straggly hair and the creepy goatee beard. Yeah, that mugshot is really the worst. Yeah, I know. Uh, For those of you unfamiliar with how this stuff works, a kid show host charged with exposing himself in a porn theater uh, garnered some attention. (laughs) The fallout was swift and immediate. CBS stopped airing Pee-wee's Playhouse reruns in the aftermath of his arrest. Disney's MGM Studios in Florida stopped playing a tape in its studio tour in which Pee-wee Herman explains how voiceover tracks are made. And on July 30th, four days after the arrest, it was reported that Toys R Us was removing Pee-wee toys from its stores. The spokesperson took the time to twist the knife by adding that the Pee-wee fad had peaked a few years earlier, adding, in an all-time quote for the ages, it's not like something happened with Cabbage Patch, then we'd have a problem. (laughs) Similar to what happened when Fred Rogers died, psychologists spoke to news outlets about the best way to discuss this news with children. Montreal child psychologist Jeffrey Durvineski said children should be told that, quote, Pee-wee is an adult, and while he can play children's parts on television, he's interested in some adult things. He's interested in other parts in real life. Yeah, I... Show us on the Pee-wee doll. What was the name of the movie again? Tiger's... Big Top Pee-wee? Tiger's Parts? No, the porn movie. Oh, uh... There, it was a triple bill. I don't, I'm not actually sure which movie was playing. Uh, Catalina 5-0 Tiger Shark, ah. Nurse Nancy, and Turn Up the Heat. Oh, Nurse Nancy's parts. That is the name of the... Oh, it's sorry. It's Catalina 5-0 colon Tiger Shark. <laughs> when I say colon, I mean... <laughs> oh, what a rich text. <laughs> Didn't Fred Willard also get... Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then he died. Went out on top. There was a massive outpouring of support for Rubens. Pro Pee-wee rallies were held in New York, L.A., and San Francisco, featuring signs with slogans like, Hands off our Pee-wee. That could have gone back to the writer's room. No, it's, it's kind of what, exactly what it needed to be. That's true. In addition to showing support for Rubens, the main gist of the marches was to protest CBS for canceling the reruns. One of the organizers summed it up to Entertainment Weekly. Look. Pee-wee Herman made CBS millions of dollars over the past few years. Now he stands accused of something, and they were ready to sell him down the river. It's up the river, but sure. Uh, in one of one of your favorite incidences, the words, We heart you, Pee-wee, were spray-painted in hot pink letters on the exterior of the offending porn theater, the South Trail Cinema. The New York Times published a supportive editorial, and a special Entertainment Weekly poll revealed that an overwhelmingly high percentage of people felt that the actor had been mistreated by both the law and the media. 
spokesman for the syndicated TV program, A Current Affair, said the show had received tens of thousands of responses to a Wee telephone survey on July 31st, and that the callers supported Rubens 9 to 1 with messages like, we have sons his age and these things happen. <laughs> True. Celebrities voiced their support publicly as well. Uh, one of these... Unfortunately, at this stage in history, was Bill Cosby. He issued a public <laughs> statement of support that read, in part, whatever... Oh, boy. Whatever Rubens has done, this is being blown all out of proportion. <sighs> Just call her. Uh, in less uh, scummy celebrities, Annette Funicello... My beloved. ...voiced her support for Rubens, as did Cindy Lauper, who slammed the charge as a victimless occurrence. True. E.G. Daly, his love interest in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, told Entertainment Weekly, this could be a blessing in disguise for him. Maybe it will make people see him as a normal, sexual human being. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm reading that in, in Tommy Pickles' voice, because she was yeah. the voice of Tommy yeah, Pickles yeah, yeah, yeah. in Rugrats. Uh, in addition, many also wondered why the Sarasota Police Department was spending so much time in an adult theater anyway. Sheriff Jeff Mong claimed that the South Trail Cinema was targeted only once every three or four months, but theater employees claimed this was more like twice a month, and that the police in groups of three to six would spend up to six hours at a stretch in the theater. In fact, they claimed, sometimes they would sit in the theater while it was completely empty for up to an hour waiting for people. <laughs> Surprisingly, Rubens even had the support of the members of the local law enforcement community. Captain Terry Lewis of the Sarasota Sheriff's Department told EW, I sure hope things work out for old Pee-wee. Now, if you'll excuse me, it's time for my shift at the empty porn theater. I'm getting paid overtime for this. Time and a half for working after, after six. God. <sighs> Rubens maintained his innocence, but pleaded no contest to a charge of indecent exposure in exchange for 75 hours of community service, a $50 fine, and $85.75 in court costs. He spent a month or so wandering the pastoral grounds of Doris Duke's estate like a scrawny Charles Foster Kane, turning away most visitors, save for his lawyers, and Cindy Lauper. Now, oh, beats Bill Cosby. Uh, he tried to laugh off the arrest publicly two months after the fact when he appeared at the MTV Video Music Awards in his Pee Wee getup and asked the audience, heard any good jokes lately? That was no. masterful. Yeah, that was great. Good bit. The response was an epic standing ovation. Uh, but despite this, Rubens did not get over the trauma that easily. He was heartbroken that his life's work was at risk, telling Paper Magazine, it was really sad to me that there was any kind of tarnish on Pee Wee Herman. Me? Put whatever tarnish you want on me. But headlines all over the world were like, Pee Wee Herman arrested. Pee Wee Herman wasn't arrested. I was arrested. He elaborated to Vanity Fair that even one parent would say, well, I'm not going to let my kid watch that show anymore, was really painful because I just took it so seriously, the show. I took my responsibility to kids really seriously. He was especially aggrieved when People Magazine made him one of the 25 most intriguing people of the year in the wake of the arrest. I thought, God, the amount of time and energy and work that I put into entertaining kids, fighting the good fight, and I've become an intriguing person for this? He more or less stepped back from public life for a number of years. He performed as Pee Wee at a 1992 tribute to Minnie Pearl at the Grand Ole Opry. But other than that, he abandoned the character for the better part of a decade. MTV made an offer to revive the show, but he shut it down, saying, I didn't feel like it was the right time. Certainly not right after. And there wasn't any real money in it. 
I had worked so hard, I didn't want to put it back on TV just for the sake of putting it on TV. Rubens became something of a recluse, refusing to attend premieres with friends for fear of having to field questions from the press about his arrest. And he would later regret this approach, telling the New York Times, it was stupid not to do anything. I never spoke out. I just went and hid. If I had to do it all over again, I would figure out a way to get out there, talk about it, take control of it. But then, slowly but surely, he started to reemerge. Around this time, he was linked to the actress Debbie Mazur, who Rubens cited as helping him overcome his depression. It's unclear if they were friends or more than friends. Uh, Mazur, for her part, has claimed that their relationship was not consummated, so um, your mileage may vary. <laughs> Rubens had cameos in the 1992 films Batman Returns and voiceover work in A Nightmare Before Christmas, both directed by his friend Tim Burton, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as well as bit parts in Dunstan Checks In and Buddy, both of which are movies about primates. In 1995, he took a recurring role on Murphy Brown as the annoying toady nephew of the fictional station owner, which I remember this very well. This was the moment when you're a kid, when you learn that actors play multiple roles. You know what I mean? Like, I remember seeing him on Murphy Brown being like, wait, that's, that's Pee Wee. You watched hell? Murphy then, Brown as a child? My parents did. <laughs> and then I wandered in and, and would see him. Uh, he was also the host of the short-lived ABC game show You Don't Know Jack, based on the video game series of the same name, but it was canceled after only six episodes due to low ratings. He tried to make a TV pilot for NBC called Meet the Muckles, which was hmm. about a family of performers with himself and the patriarch and host of the show within a show. It was going to be kind of like, I think it was the movie You Can't Take It With You. I think it was based on that, but it was like a... All I can think of is the aristocrats family. I, I don't think it was like that, but it was, um, yeah, a family of like circus performers, I believe. Uh, but his perfectionist streak took over as he demanded complicated production numbers and a very elaborate set that included building an ornate Victorian home above the NBC studios. I don't fully understand that. Mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. After three years and two production companies, it was deemed too expensive and set adrift in development hell indefinitely. But he did get cast in your beloved 1999's Mystery Men as Spleen, I think was the character. The, yes, the, the man, that is the, the, the Spleen, because the he had targeted incredibly powerful farts. Yes, yes. Flatulence man, yes. As Vanity Fair wrote, oh, please read this. This is a beautiful description. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you love this movie, so I want you to I really do love Mystery Men. I think it's a great movie. And, and was it curious? Kel Mitchell in it, too? Yeah. Curiously uh, ahead of its time in kind of spoofing superhero stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. But this description of Paul Rubin's character in Vanity Fair is, is beautiful. Please share it with us. On screen, it's clear he was enjoying himself, playing the film's most outre character, and staging some of the more elaborate fart jokes in movie history with an obvious gusto. <laughs> it would have been great if Variety had done it and called it Boffo. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Rubens would also turn in a critically praised performance in 2001's Blow, which is probably his most famous non-Peewee role. Um, when, after he died, that was kind of the, the thing that I saw making the rounds. Uh, hang on, the cops are going by. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll punch that sound in for the uh, <laughs> porn bus description. The only other thing I can think of was his role as the uh, royal Austrian prince whose name i can never pronounce like gernhardt Messerschmitt, ramstein von hap 
my notes tell me. Yes, an incredible performance. Like yeah. really from, at, at, from 30 it, Rock. Yeah, yeah. One of one of the best. Uh, so just as he was starting to get his career on track in the early 2000s, there was um, another bust. This one I completely missed when it happened. I didn't know about this until researching him. It occurred in November 2002 when Rubens was filming the music video for Elton John's This Train Don't Stop There Anymore, which is a great video. It's the one, it's like done in one shot. Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake. Eerily transforms into Elton John. I mean, I know like the weird hair plug stuff helped, but like he's very good. And then Paul Rubens, this is like. It's a great song too. Yeah, that is a great song. That was like the last great Elton John album. Songs from the West Coast, Mm. I think. That's what it's called. Yeah. But while he was on the set filming this video, Paul learned that the police were at his home with a search warrant investigating what's been described as his private erotica collection. <laughs> this is where his kitsch collections really... That interest didn't pay off. Mm. As a guy who collects kitschy things, I can say, I, I know I have a good sense of what might help you out down the road for an investment purposes and what might cause legal issues. This, yeah, this is not a good, this is not a good one. Uh, this is where it gets a little fuzzy. Paul Rubens was a self-described collector of kitschy vintage erotica, which were like old muscle magazines and vintage homosexual material. And the city's attorney office claimed that <laughs> vintage he Vintage had... homosexual material. I would watch that band. <laughs> that was how Wikipedia phrased it. <laughs> the city attorney's office claimed that he had over 70,000 items of kitsch memorabilia putting my collection to shame, uh, two grainy videotapes and dozens of photographs that they characterized as, quote, child pornography. I'd like to clarify, I don't have 70,000 items of child pornography. I should have phrased that better. Not with that attitude, you don't. (laughs) This is somehow like the shaggiest episode we've ever done. Sure is. Yep. Uh, Kelly Bush, Ruben's personal representative at the time, denied this assertion that he had child pornography and stated that the objects in question were Rob Lowe's sex videotape mm-hmm. and a few 30 to 100-year-old kitsch collectible images. Rubens turned himself into the Hollywood division of the Los Angeles Police Department and was charged with misdemeanor possession of obscene material improperly depicting a child under the age of 18 in sexual conduct. The explanation that seemed to satisfy everyone at the time was that Paul Rubens was a collector who bought vintage porn in bulk, and one of his vintage magazine dealers declared there was, quote, no way he could have known the content of each page of the publications that he bought. Furthermore, he recalled Rubens asking for, quote, physique magazines and vintage 60s material, but nothing featuring kids. In March 2004, child pornography charges were dropped in exchange for Rubens' guilty plea to a lesser misdemeanor obscenity charge. And for the next three years, he was required to register his address with the sheriff's office, and he could not be in the company of minors without the permission of their parent or legal guardian. So, um, that's troubling. That must have been a real blow to him. Oh, yeah. Uh, Weirdly, not many people know this. A pre-fame Paul Rubens was also arrested during Christmas 1983 at an adult bookstore in Florida. Details of this bust are unknown, but his name and address were printed in the paper at the time. Hmm. But Paul Rubens eventually found his way back to Pee Wee. In 2007, maybe not coincidentally the year that he no longer had to register as a sex offender and was allowed to be in the company of minors again... He appeared in character for the first time in 15 years at, checks notes, 
Spike TV's Guys Choice Awards mm-hmm. for some reason. Uh, yeah, the, in his latter years, he trotted out the Pee Wee character rarely, but when he did, it was usually at hyper-masculine events like WrestleMania. I don't really understand that, but that's interesting. Uh, he spent much of the early 2000s working on a pair of Pee Wee movies that unfortunately would never see the light of day. One was meant for kids, and one that was a little more adult. The latter was a black comedy to be called The Pee Wee Herman Story, which depicted the rise and fall of Pee Wee. Talking to MTV.com, he said, It's basically the story of Pee Wee Herman becoming a famous singer. He has a hit single and gets brought out to Hollywood to make musical movies, kind of like they did with Elvis. It all kind of goes downhill from there for Pee Wee. He turns into a monster. He does everything wrong and becomes a big jerk. He would go on to say that it was heavily inspired by my beloved camp classic, Valley of the Dolls, with some scenes directly lifted from that film wholesale, which is funny. The family-friendly movie was to be called Pee-wee's Playhouse, the movie, and followed Pee-wee and his Playhouse friends leaving the house for the first time to explore the world of Puppetland. And he would say that this movie was a blend of H.R. Puffin stuff and the wonderful Wizard of Oz. In interviews, he claimed to have approached Pee-wee's Big Adventure director Tim Burton with one of the scripts and talked to Johnny Depp about the possibility of having him portray Pee-wee. Hmm. I'm guessing that's the adult one. But Tim Burton was too busy, and Johnny Depp gave it the old, uh, let me think about it, and none of those projects ever happened. In 2010, Rubens announced the return to the stage with a relaunch of the Pee-wee Herman Show, which was the original vehicle that brought him prominence 30 years earlier. He intended the show to act as a way to, quote, introduce Pee-wee to a new generation that didn't know about him and also lay the groundwork for a feature film. This theatrical production made a brief run on Broadway and was taped for an HBO special, just like his original one back in 1981. And to promote the Broadway show, Pee-wee guest starred at the WWE Raw at the Nassau Coliseum, Participating in backstage antics and even having an in-ring confrontation with The Miz and Alex Riley. None of those names mean anything to me. Do they mean anything to you? Um, wrestlers, I think. The Miz is a wrestler. Well, yeah, but I meant like... Oh, like good they... wrestlers or like iconic yeah. wrestlers? No, I have no idea. Okay, good. Then he returned to WWE at WrestleMania 7 in a segment with The Rock and Gene Underland. Oh, G- Gene Okerlund. To- mean Gene. Come on, get your shit together. The Rock and Mean Gene. Wow. Huh. That's my era of wrestling that I like is like the, the late 90s Attitude Era. <laughs> attitude? What Attitude That's is that? No, it's literally what it's called, the Attitude Era. Why? I mean, uh, I because I they, guess, they but... sort of pivoted from like the, you know, Hulk, Heig- Hulk, Hulk Heigl. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of pivoted from the Hulk Hogan, uh, like Sting brightly colored ultimate warrior like day glow neon stuff to becoming like edgy uh that's when you get like the undertaker like burying people alive and huh. like crucifying vince mcmahon and mankind like Mick Foley. that's when i mean that's the era that uh stone cold came up in you know throwing the throwing the bird and drinking beers and um yeah it's literally called the attitude era i am not making that up that's very funny uh, during this episode with The Rock and me and Gene, Pee-wee admitted to being John Cena's number one fan. Aw. Yeah. That same year, what year was that? Let's just say 2010, I think it was. Yes, it was. 
Rubens appeared as Pee-wee in a funnier die sketch. It was actually pretty good, in which he brings a new iPad home to the playhouse. This is just after they've been released. And all the characters just talk about what a piece of garbage it is. (laughs) Conky points out its flaws by saying that it looks like a giant iPhone. And then in the end, Pee-wee uses the iPad as a serving tray to hold glasses of milk and lemonade. Throwback uh, at a party at the playhouse. So check that out. That's pretty funny. No. Okay. (laughs) The year 2010 was really a banner year for Pee Wee fans because that same year it was announced that Paul Rubens was developing a new Pee Wee movie produced by real life friend of the pod, Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow tweeted our uh, Freaks and Geeks episode out. And it did nothing for us. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) This movie would see the light of day in 2016 as the Netflix released Pee Wee's Big Holiday, which I completely missed. I don't remember this at all. Uh, despite the fact that it was the first Pee-wee movie in 28 years, I got nothing for you. <laughs> Netflix summarized the plot thus. A chance encounter with a mysterious stranger, played by Joe Mangello. Joe Mangello? <laughs> I can't say it. Joe Manginello. He's the f***ing big beefcake guy from... Uh, he's, he's married to Sofia Vergara, or was. Yeah, he's, uh, on, um, he's in, he's in Tr- Magic Mike and True Blood, yeah. Oh. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, He's the mysterious stranger in this new Pee-wee movie. And this mysterious stranger points Pee-wee towards his destiny, according to the Netflix summary, and his first ever holiday. Rubens told Mental Floss shortly after the movie was announced, It's a road picture. (laughs) I've never heard anyone after 1950 refer to their movies as a picture. (laughs) It's a road picture, and it's an adventure story. It's similar in tone and structure to Pee-wee's Big Adventure in that it's a road picture. I'm trying to get somewhere. I live in a real little small town, and I don't get much excitement. I guess a chance meeting with Joe Manchinella will do that. When asked if he was nervous about reprising his role, the then 64-year-old Paul Rubens told Mental Floss, Not really. Not since I found out about digital retouching. The time seems right, as I've watched all these things from the 80s come back. I thought, okay, it's Pee-wee's term. It is. Yeah. It was. I don't really want to end this three-hour deep dive into one of the most unique characters in pop culture history with a Netflix movie, but in a way, it's perfectly appropriate, because we're all beholden to Netflix and the streamers. Did we talk about this early in this episode? I think we did. Uh, That was the last time that Paul Rubens played the character of Pee Wee Herman before his death earlier this year. But let's give the final word to a top of his game, Paul Rubens, talking to Rolling Stone in 1987. When discussing his life's work, he said, I'm just trying to illustrate that it's okay to be different. Not that it's good, not that it's bad, but that it's all right. I'm trying to tell kids to have a good time and to encourage them to be creative and question things. This sounds so preachy, but I think it's real important to be able to share, to be a good person. That's what my work is about. Heart, before adding, I'm like starting to gag at myself hearing this. Go on. You can do it. Is it the the laugh? You want the laugh? <laughs> no. I, uh, ah, ah, no, yeah, I can't ah, it, it was. That was good. Huh. <laughs> I, I need wait, give me something to say because there, there's two there's the there's that there's, yeah. and then there's the like the kind of like first you have to you have to make your throat real small for the, the laugh and then you need to make your mouth real small for the like yeah can you can you say uh, for a million dollars like, oh that's really good can you do jet fuel can't melt steel beams 
Jethro can't melt steel beams, Jambi. I can't believe after you prompting me for a, such a myriad of impressions, never, we never finally that. got that was, a Pee Wee Herman. We got the one we got out of you is Pee Wee Herman. Incredible <laughs> stuff. That was that's I've never done it before. Oh man. Well, we'll see if I'll keep that. Well, <laughs> well, folks, this has been too much information. I know you usually say that, <laughs> but it's a it's a topsy it's a topsy tip. Nah. <laughs> And now I lost it. No, I like I the idea that you're like, this is just going to haunt you. Like being finally like, being able to really dial I know in your I can do impression. It. I know I can do it. Like I'm just trying to figure out like how to make my mouth to do it. Yeah. You're just going to fade out on you trying to keep doing all these. <laughs> well, folks, this has been too much information. Uh, I'm Alex Heigl and. And you're not. And yeah. And I don't know. <laughs> stay out of Sarasota theaters, man. <laughs> or at least bring a paper. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.